Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. From joining Martin Luther King's March on Washington to joining a community conversation via letter to the editor of the local paper, the synergy of people coming together in protest proves its power to create change on global, national, local, and personal levels. And through the study of past and present social movements, participants in the 2017 Benyon Workshop at Utah State University uh, are exploring ethical dimensions of bringing these often sensitive issues into the classroom and the role of literature in civic engagement. And so, as I mentioned there, the Benyon um, Teacher Workshop is ongoing on Utah State University uh, campus. This is sponsored by the Mountain West Center for Regional Studies at Utah State University. And I have with me in studio uh, the keynote speaker, Margaret Witt, who is Professor Emeritus at uh, Denver, University, University of, of Denver. Denver. Yes. Uh, so retired from University of Denver. That is correct. And back to South Carolina, you were saying. Back to we North Carolina. There. North Carolina, sorry. And North Carolina. when you live on the East Coast, North and South Carolina are very different. Yes. <laughs> Showing a Western uh, ignorance there. But actually, just slip of the tongue. Um, so um, this is a, an interesting uh, workshop, and the title of it is Literature of Protest, Civil Rights, Democracy, and uh, Social Justice. You're talking in part about an interesting book, award-winning book, uh, Short Stories of the Civil Rights uh, Movement. And I want to uh, start, start there. You tell a very interesting story in the introduction to the book. You say this is the genesis of the book. I wonder if you'd tell me that story. Um, it happened in 1998 when I went back for my 30th college reunion. I graduated from a small school, liberal arts, church-related in the South, in North Carolina. And on April 4th, 1968, um, I was editor of my campus newspaper, and we were all sitting together in the science lecture hall listening to the Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan. And the president of our class came into the, to the room, and he said, we have just heard, Mr. Jones, who was the Grand Dragon of the Ku Klux Klan at the time, that Martin Luther King has been assassinated. Do you have any comment? And two black students, it was about 300 people in the room, all white, two black students who were basketball players, freshmen students, got up and walked out. The rest of us just sat. 30 years pass. I'm back from my 30th reunion in the same room. The same class president stands up and says the last time we were here together was the night Martin Luther King was assassinated. And all of each of us turned to one another and we said, oh yeah, and Jones said this. Jones said that, and we all remembered what he said, but we, remem we remembered it variously. And I thought, why hadn't the rest of us walked out? And that is when I knew what segregation had done to me. I graduated from high school in the South 10 years after Brown v. Board from a still all-white high school in 1964, when I sh it should have been integrated in 1954, but it wasn't. I, sh I went to an all-white church. I went to an all-white uh, playgrounds. I went to all-white uh, shopping malls. So I thought, boy, uh, I've got a lot to make up for. So that's when I started visiting all the sites of the civil rights movement. Um, I was also editor of my college newspaper, and I went to read what I had said when Martin Luther King died. And then I did a comparative study of historically white and black colleges, church-related liberal arts in North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi, 88 of them, to see what other college newspaper editors had said about Martin Luther King. And I would have to say that it was, it was embarrassing in its shallowness. And so I set out to find out where was I when all of this was going on and I just seem to be in some protective cocoon. So I've started in earnest traveling these places, studying about them. And the last decade that I was at the University of Denver, I taught core classes, general education classes, called the Long Walk to, Toward Justice, and um, trying to introduce my students to these stories that are powerful and that um, were happening, and some of them I knew of and some of them I did not. You, uh, you say in your introduction that literature can help us to feel history. This is what you yes. wanted for your students. Yes. Tell another story. Have you tell that one? You're at the Vietnam Memorial. 
This illustrates right. how you know broad scope of history can yeah. be really crystallized if you see it through the eyes of one person. Exactly. There are fifty eight thousand plus names on that wall. And yet it's it, it it doesn't sink in until you see one person crying because he sees one person that he knows whose name is on that wall. And I thought, what is it that makes us respond? It's the individual things. And I do believe that we can learn an awful lot about history through studying the literature because we can feel it. We can say, how does that feel to do this? And so I had been teaching short stories about the civil rights movement. And then I realized, you know, what I really needed was to put all these together in a book, which didn't exist at that time. So University of Georgia Press was willing, and I went in search of all the stories and 23 stories in this book. And they pretty much are what exists. There's a few I missed. There's a few that were left out. But for the most part, it represents the events of the civil rights movement. So I'm very proud of this book, and I can say that not because I did it, but because of the writers that are here. They were written by other people, professional writers. You said something very interesting that such a book, if you'd had a book when you were growing up, and especially if you'd have discussed it in classroom, it would have got you out of this cocoon, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, and some of these stories were available at the time. Uh, But uh, how you find short stories, I've always thought of it as a kind of the throwaway genre. You know, you publish a short story in maybe a magazine or a small journal, and then it gets tossed away. So it's anthologers, anthologies that people have to go out and say, here it is again, it's worth, it's worth looking at. There's something called the Short Story Index. And back in the 60s and the 70s, here is the label that you went to to find out where you could find these civil rights stories. The label was actually Negroes. So you looked under... Negroes, and you had to try to figure from the title, does that seem like it would be about the civil rights movement? And that's how, so it was, it was difficult to find out where are these stories? Some of them journals so small that you couldn't find. And I, maybe there's some more out there, and I just don't know them. But I certainly gave it a really good try to find every story that I could. Mm-hmm. And some of these stories are so painful. I was talking in class today when we were, when we were really got into the story size. There's 32 two, uh, participants. And I said, how many of you cried at one of these stories? And I'd say half the students participants who are now teachers and training to be teachers when you read these stories and and about half of them raise their hands and I still they're they're emotionally moving when you read them because they make you think about oh my goodness this really happened and it affected people's lives people died for this and uh, when I taught my course for a dozen years the thing that mattered most to me was that my students understood how important the vote was to people who should have had the vote, but resisted the vote. Uh, This morning I told a story of a woman I met on the street in 2004 in Hainville, Alabama. She was 100 years old. And uh, I told her who I was. We had a little talk. um, And I said, "Um, is there anything you'd like me to, to, I'd like to take your picture and show it to my students. And she, she said, I said, is there anything, any message you want me to give my students? And she said, well, I want you to tell them that when it comes time for them to register to vote, they should do it. Because I didn't get the right to vote till I was almost 60. Mm. And I, I always told them that. And I'm still moved by that to think that we uh, denied the vote to so many African-American uh, people that lived in Mississippi, Alabama. Yeah, that is powerful, isn't it? It, it is, a, a, very a, much an so. An actual person who didn't get the right to vote till 60. Right, exactly. Yeah. And she was just one person, you know, mm-hmm. one again, one person that I happened to bump mm-hmm. into on the street. And in the South, you know, you always don't, you don't pass somebody on the street without going, how y'all doing today? Right. You know, it's what we do. Right, right. <laughs> um, it, it, it's interesting, and, and you uh, you divide the, the, the stories into several sections. Yes. One that's very impactful is is violence, right? You, yes. And, and... A lot of the violence centered on that key issue of voting, right? Exactly, of keeping people. And, and I, that, that section starts off with liars don't qualify. And there's the only violence is verbal violence, is a man tries to register to vote. And two white people just berate him, humiliate him, and try to suggest that he had lied because he once belonged to the Army Reserve, or still belonged to the Army Reserve. And um, he walks out thinking, well, I didn't make it this time, maybe next time. Hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. One of the stories is um, seen through the eyes. I think it's a, it's a white um, racist. Oh, Eudora Welty's? Killer, yeah. Yes. Where's the voice coming from? This is so powerful because Eudora Welty wrote this story, Where's the Voice Coming From? Within the same night, she started the story the same night that Medgar Evers was killed. Mm -hmm. Medgar Evers lived within four miles of Eudora Welty. And she knew who the killer was. And by that, I mean she didn't know who the killer was. She knew the type of person who would who would feel that he had the right to kill Medgar Evers. That story was published in The New Yorker within six weeks of the incident of his death on March 12, 1963. And it is amazing how, uh, how disturbing it is. Um, and then, of course, Medgar Evers' killer, two mistrials, and then 30 years pass, and finally Byron D. Beckwith is, is uh, found guilty and spent the rest of his life in prison. Yeah. In a lot of these, well, many cases, the killers are never brought to justice. That is correct. Um, yeah. Some few cases, the killer is eighty years old or something, and, and that convicted. is correct. Yeah, um, it, a lot of violence and centered around voting, and I, I, so I, I, I see how this is just one element of the civil rights that's important mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. kids to learn, all of us right. to learn, but kids to learn. Um, it, it does underpin a lot of the stuff that's happening today. It, it, it can does. help explain why some people are very upset about uh, search for what some people see as non-existent voter fraud and exactly. see it as voter suppression. Exactly. You know, it's a question of the other. Um, we're, we're scared of otherness. We like sameness, it seems. And uh, I grew up in the midst of sameness, and that's why it didn't strike me in 1968 that I should walk out of the room. Um, and it struck me in 98, why didn't I walk out of the room? So um, I once heard a speaker talk, and she said, you know, my parents raised me to understand that it was my job in life to meet as many people as I could who were different from me. And I think that we are expanded by difference. Uh, We are broadened by difference. So um, I think that when we see people who are not like ourselves, you know, we have a tendency to want to judge them how are they? If they are different from me, that must make them less than. And so I, I try to, to understand what does this person have to say? Uh, what does this person know that I don't know? How can my life be better because I've just had a conversation with this person? Mm. Yeah. So as you've had these discussions with students and you've, you've just expanded it interestingly to, you know, you can make a leap from what you just said to today, where it's, uh, from my view anyway, that we're we're losing that to some degree. We're just becoming more polarized, and it's you know we 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 want to do broad 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 stripes, and I think you have to keep bringing it down to the one on one. You know, here's I I am a a, a liberal person, um, and I I live now in a very conservative community. People I serve on a board at my local community center in this gorge that where I live in western North Carolina. People who vote differently from me come in my house all the time. I know them as kind. I know them as generous. I don't understand how they vote. They don't understand how I vote. But I know that if I were in trouble, they would help me. And so what I'm trying to do is in my life now and around the people um, who are my neighbors is to, you can't just cast a net out there and say, these are bad. These are good. Um, I am absolutely thrilled that I get to live a post university of Denver existence that is so different from the academic community where I wasn't daily challenged by who lives around me. So to me, it's a question of, just taking the time to get to know one person, you know, one person and then another person. And you see that there are things that more things that you might have in common than there are that you don't have in common. And yet the vitriolic um, ugliness that we spew um, is sometimes it's not it's not personally directed. You can't do it if you know someone. Um uh, 
And it, it, you do it when you don't know someone, when you make assumptions about things. So I, I, I might be getting off track a little here. No, but, not, not at all. Not so, at all. I want, to, I want to bring it forward. Okay. I'm interested. So these discussions, I don't know, you're one of the few liberals in town, maybe. I don't know. But, but uh, um, <laughs> You mean where I live now? Where you, where you live now. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. But, but you, have, you have this interaction. How, I do. How open is it when you talk about politics? Well, um, I would say that their, their tolerance of my – I'm fairly in your face – when I know what their vote is, but they're not in my face. And I have to sort of draw back and say, you know, pay attention to what you're doing here. You're just letting everybody know who you vote for, but you're not letting them have a chance to say who they vote for. And so there's there's a kind of um, southern manners that we sink into. And we try to avoid the subject. You know, during this this very heated election that we just had in November. In my little community, there were absolutely no yard signs. There were no bumper stickers. I had a bumper sticker I wanted to put on my car, but I said, I can't do that here. So there's just a kind of, um, you are who you are, but you just are respectful that some people think differently about the world. Um, And I see that uh, I'm trying to understand and put forth my positions as tactfully as I can. And because I think we all think we're right. And so if we can just move to other issues. Uh, we had a huge fire in my community in the gorge this summer, 7,000 acres. A fireman came from all over the country to fight this fire. And so we're trying to become a firewise community now. And, and we're, we're working together about something that's Nobody wants their house to be burned down. And people who voted differently are helping each other clean their house up so that we can not have burned houses if the fires come back, which they will, of course. So uh, it's just it's a it's a kind of patience. It's a kind of politeness. It's a kind of trying to reach out around politics. Maybe that's putting your head in the sand, but you know, mm. you can't say, gee, I wish you not vote that way and mm. vote my way. Um, I'm not going to listen to that, and nobody else is going to listen to that. Mm. You just try to like each other for, for what it is that you see that's good there. Mm. We are all much bigger than politics in some ways. Mm. Or in the, when, we, when we talk about what politics means, like, right. like who you voted for. Right. Yeah. yeah, at the very least, it's hard to demonize somebody if you. Have clean, them clean, in your home. Have them in Absol- your home. Clean up a fire with them. Right, right. exactly. Yeah. yeah. They don't have to be volunteering in your yard, and they are. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that's great. Yeah. And you, you said we're much bigger than how we voted. That's, uh, you know, it seems like uh, you've consumed a lot of the media mm-hmm. that we're reducing ourselves to how we voted. But you're, yes. you're saying if you know someone, you know, face to face, then there's mm-hmm. a lot more to a person than how they voted. Yes. Exactly. Um, I've become such a big NCAA college basketball fan since I've moved back to North Carolina, home of both Duke and University of North Carolina. And I see how the players interact with each other. And I see, you know, in my day, you would have had all white boys on a team and all black boys on a team that was an all black school. Well, of course, the world has changed in those 50 years. But I genuinely believe uh, and am convinced that they're not just white and black boys, young men playing together. They have affection for each other. They know where the other person, they're friends. They have become friends. When you can make friends with somebody that you never thought you were going to be friends with, you start to say, you know, I no longer see you as the color that you are. I see you because your mother and my mother both said the same thing to us, and we're laughing at that. Mm-hmm. So uh, I just I, I think that there's my world has gotten bigger as I have gotten older, and I'm I'm uh, I'm thankful for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You said, uh, are there limits? So what you're saying is very hopeful, and and I could wish this for the entire nation, oh, right? That we'd get to know yes. each other. Perhaps limits. Um, you said you had a bumper sticker. You felt yeah, I just can't put that on my car. Was, right? Is that politeness? Is that what is? What is that? We had um, it. We had a, a a visiting community come, and one of the women 
who brought her car up had 19 bumper stickers on her car for the other person who ran for president. And I thought, wow, that's just rude. (laughs) You know, nobody here does that. And that was sort of like, well, over the top. And I thought, boy, maybe there's some anger there. And I'm trying to understand what that's about. Of course, I read J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy and tried to understand that. I read the recent article in in The New Yorker about West Virginia and its opioid problem. And uh, people who's, who's, who feel that their lives have, um, they haven't gotten a fair shake or they're wondering um, what to do with themselves. And, you know, I, I think that anything that we see is so much more complicated than, than the surface. Um, but I, I just, I have an optimism. I do believe uh, in it, that, that truth, <laughs> I was starting to sound like Superman, truth, justice in the American way. I do believe that facts matter. I do believe that evidence matters. I do believe in truth and I do believe in kindness. And I do believe in uh, watching out for one another. And I think that's who we are as a people. And until I die, I'm, go- I'm choosing to believe that. Do you um, I think a lot of us, I'm a political junkie, I get caught up in the, sure. all, all of the minute-by-minute oh, yeah. minute stuff, and there's Absolutely. a lot coming out of Washington today. Right. Uh, in your community there in North Carolina, is, are people glued to that? Are they disconnected no. from that? No. I would say that what I feel uh, the issues are for, for conservative uh, friends that are still struggling with um, the homosexual issue, that are still struggling with um, abortion. These are the things that seem to consume them more than, uh, you know, uh, j- things that ha- have now been made law. Uh, so the the issues on some level are simple, and they're they're upset that they are this way. So I uh, I um, I don't know how to take the conversation in a way that's meaningful, except to say to myself, I like these people. And I think they like me, and yet, so together, if we keep liking each other, maybe we can see that the other person is not the demon that we want to make them be. Mm-hmm. Is the size of the community? Do you think is that a factor? You, I mean, you're you're we're small, small. You're thrown together. You have yes. to live with these Ex- people. Exactly. There okay. is there is some of that, no question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I also have to know that if something happens to me. Um, there's going to be somebody there that is that is the neighbor. You know, you reach a point in time where friends friends are great. Of course, we all want friends, but you also need good neighbors, somebody that you don't have to get along with, but that's going to come over and see, are you still living? <laughs> you know, we haven't seen you in a few days. Yeah. Are you okay? Right. Yeah. There's an interesting story to, dovetailing on what we've just been talking about. It's called, uh, near the end of the book, Spring is Now, Yes. where a uh, white girl, she right. has a bunch of racial stereotypes in her head. She does. She would at that time, and then she meets um, a, a black boy in the in the school. Yes, I guess this is after it's been desegregated. Yes. Well, um, there there are four sections in my uh, in a school desegregation unit. Three of them are told from the black perspective. One is told from the white perspective. Spring is now is is the one you're referring to, and we see that her. We, we talked today about how it's absolutely essential to understand every person that we know in time and in place. Um, and so we see the grandmother in that story who is very racist, but we have to understand the time out of which she comes. We see her son who is not racist. We see examples in the story where he helps the people who are of a different race from him. And then we see the daughter of him who is is even more liberal looking at who her grandmother was, who her father is, and then trying to start to think for herself. And when she meets Jack Lawrence, who is the one black boy in her school, she's actually seeing him as an as a person who is her classmate. And, you know, we talked a little bit about that today in class. She actually sort of finds him a little bit attractive, and mm. this is kind of shocking to her nothing that develops in the story but because jack lawrence knows that he cannot as a black boy in this time period be interested in a white girl because that would have been not acceptable 
at that time period. Mm-hmm. So it's just so important that we try to look at everybody in time and place. Yeah. I think we have to understand our students that way, too. Out of what time and place have you come? Yeah. yeah. Uh, it is. It does have a big effect on us. I, I sometimes look at, and I've been looking at today in preparation for this interview, uh, the pictures on the, when they're integrating that uh, high school in, in um, Little Rock. Yes. Uh-huh. And you look at the white people around those students, mm-hmm. you know, hurling invective. Yes. Uh, hateful expressions. Yes. And then, you, then you see the films and you hear some of it. Um, yeah. And I, I judge those people pretty harshly. And then the yes. thought comes, but for the grace of God, mm-hmm. I might have been one of those people who just brought up that way, right? Yes, exactly. I was, I was just telling this story. Carlotta Walls Lanier, the youngest member of the Little Rock Nine, um, there are two. There are three of the of the nine who have told their stories in book. Uh, Melba Patella Beals, who's wrote "Warriors Don't Cry," Carlotta Walls Lanier, who wrote "Long Walk Toward Justice," and then Terry Roberts has a book out too. I can't remember the name of his book. So, Carlotta was finally invited to her fiftieth high school reunion. She'd never been invited to any of her reunions, and one of the men that she ran into, who was her classmate, said, Carlotta, I remember that I spoke four words. You and I exchanged four words with each other back in high school. And she said, oh, really? What What did we say? He told her, he said, you dropped your, your purse one day, and I picked it up for you, and you said thank you. And then I said, you're welcome. And he remembered it 50 years later that that had been what they had said to each other. It was a very lonely time to be um, the only white person in each of your classes, um, you had to be specially vigilant. What were the assignments going to be? The only black be? person, I guess. In this, the only in black person in, case, in, yeah. in this mm. all-white all school, yeah. yes. Yeah. But, I mean, there, there were nine of them, but they weren't put in, in classes together, so they were the only white student mm. in the class. So they had nobody to call to say, what was the assignment? Are we supposed to do the odd numbers in algebra? Um, so it was, it was a tough time, and Carlotta's house was bombed. Um, and then her father was accused of bombing his own house. Mm. Uh, these were, these were uh, scary times. She couldn't drive the car because she would have been followed. She would have been, uh, you know, she knew how to drive, but her parents said, no, we're not going to let you drive a car. Somebody will hurt you. She couldn't answer the phone because you never knew at that time who was calling you, and it wasn't going to be a solicitor. It was going to be somebody saying bad things to you. And nobody from your class was going to call you because, you you know, and, and when you're a teenager, my goodness, then and today, we live on the phone. You mm-hmm. want to connect with people. They couldn't go to extracurricular activities. They could go to school and go home. Had to have been an incredibly lonely time. And strong, strong people, these, these people were, because they knew they could not hurt kick back or you know the first year that they were there there were 43 bomb threats where the kids had to get out of the building because they thought it was going to be bombed yes the white kids were very unhappy that uh, the black kids had come it was voted by the american architects association as the most beautiful high school in america been built 30 years before they were there in 57 uh, it was the most expensive school. Central High School till today, still today, is a gorgeous school. Um, so when nine kids came in, I think the nine kids thought, well, after a few weeks, they'll see that we're a good group of people, and and they'll let us do things. And it didn't happen. Mm. It didn't happen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, sure. we're, uh, we'll uh, do more with uh, Margaret Witt. She is Professor Emeritus of English at uh, University of Denver. Um, and uh, she's the keynote speaker at the 2017 Benyon Teachers Workshop. The uh, title of the workshop this year is Literature Protest, Civil Rights, Democracy, and Social Justice. It's sponsored by the Mountain West Center for Regional Studies at Utah State University, ongoing uh, this week. More following this break. Along the banks of the Nile River, Egyptian farmers grow bananas, cotton, and rice, but have no use for the leaves and stems left over from harvest. Much of this material is burned, a practice that leads to air quality problems and public health concerns. But biological engineers at USU see a solution. They've developed a way to turn that unwanted plant waste into something useful. Through a process called catalytic pyrolysis, the material is broken down and made into oils or polymers that can be turned into bio-based plastics or everyday goods like home insulation, adhesives or oil-based paints. 
Support on Utah Public Radio for Creating Tomorrow is provided in part by our members and the College of Engineering at Utah State University, offering undergraduate and graduate degrees in biological engineering. Information at engineering.usu.edu. back with Margaret Witt. She is a keynote speaker at uh, the 2017 Benyon Teachers Workshop. Uh, the title this year is Literature of Protest, Civil Rights, Democracy, Social Justice. And the Benyon Teachers Workshop is sponsored by the Mountain West Center for Regional Studies and it's ongoing at Utah State University. Margaret Witt uh, gave a couple of presentations today, more presentations uh, during the week, and uh, some very interesting uh, things will be happening. Um, some titles here, The Necessity of Protest Literature, Studying and Teaching Short Stories of the Civil Rights Movement. That's a, a book that uh, Professor Witt put together, Short Stories of the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, retrospective Perspectives on Civil Rights Movement. On Wednesday, they'll be uh, talking about studying and promoting civic engagement. We've been talking a bit about that uh, as as well. Um, I'm curious, as you, you, at a certain point, you felt like you wanted to put together a Unit on Civil Rights, you want to teach this to kids. I did. And uh, we talked a little bit about the, the impetus, the, the story that uh, the 30th anniversary of going yeah. back to your college in North Carolina, yeah. and everybody's remembering this seminal event on the night that Martin Luther King is killed. Um, you're, you're at a presentation by the leader of the Ku Klux Klan. Right. And then you, you uh, wonder, well, where was I? You're all <laughs> exactly. wondering, where was I during exactly. the Civil Rights Movement? Exactly. Which I, you know, a lot of people, it's seminal, you know, mm-hmm. uh, era in our, in our, in our, yeah. uh, and you say, I'm trying to find this here, um, talking about characters and the stories in this book, uh, st- short stories of the civil rights movement. Characters look back on their involvement with or their guilt about non-involvement with civil rights movement, and the intense feelings that make it difficult for them to move forward in time. There's, there's no question that, that for some people, the civil rights movement becomes the central focus of their life. And they are so involved in it, so tied into it, so wrapped up in what they were about that they can't move on. I think we've all maybe had, can identify that, that situation in some way. And the civil rights movement was that kind of a thing that you never get over you you keep wanting to replay those moments. You keep wanting to talk about those moments. You get stuck in a trap. Um, and then I think there are those people who live through the moment, and they would be just a few years older than I am, who managed to miss it all and regret that they didn't take the opportunity to do that. Do I look back now and say, uh, do I wish I had done that? Freedom Summer was 1964. I was just finished high school. So I wasn't old enough to go to, um, to Freedom Summer. What if I had been a few years older? Would I have done it? And I try to figure out, well, would you have done that? And, you know, I try to think, who was I then? And who am the, the, the me that I am now wants to wish I had done it. But the me I was then wants to probably realize, no, I would never have done that. So it's a, it's a good way to sort of check back and say, who 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 have I become? Who was I? And thank goodness I've gotten a hold of this to sort of re-examine um, the ways that the time and place in which I grew up have, have shaped me. My students say to me, do you think you're a racist? And I look at them and with all honesty, I say, absolutely. I am a racist and I wake up every single day and try not to be. And I think there's something to, uh, I'm not an intentional racist. I am a racist by, um, by, by the training and the life that I had when I grew up. Do I want to be a racist? Of course not. Um, I have old tapes in my head that I have to consciously come to grips with and admit that that's not right and that's not who I am. So I do I think that a lot of the people that I grew up with are racist? Absolutely they're racist. Do I think that they're trying not to be? Not so sure. But I know that I am trying with great intentionality not to be. 
every single day. What do you think, so the, this long sweep, you've studied civil rights movement, uh, then a certain viewpoint culminated with our first African-American president. Yes. Mm-hmm. And now perhaps some backlash. I'm not, Absolutely. I'm not sure. Yes. Um, where do you see this going? This, you know, the, this racial divide, the, the progress or lack thereof on race? I, uh, you know, that's that's a, such a huge question, Tom. <laughs> um, where do I see it going? Um, I see that there are going to have to be more of our leaders that stand up. I have um, also said, you know, the people that are in office were put there by us, the voters. So what we've got to do is go back to the voters and say, if you do not, it's the way it's always been. If you do not like what is going on in Washington and you are opposed to this and you are a person of conscience, then go to the polls and vote. Um, We've got to get the voting gerrymandering straightened out so that people are not deprived of the vote. And we've got to have people exercise that right to vote. You can't just put all the blame on the people who are holding the office because it is the voters who put them there. So where do I see it going? Um, you know, if you if you understand the long history, and and I think this these times call on us to know more about this. In North Carolina in 1860, Abraham Lincoln was not on the ballot for president. North Carolina was trying to decide if they were going to stay in the union or not. So um, that worked out okay. Abraham Lincoln won without North Carolina's votes. Um, what we've got to do is, is be kind to one another. We've got to vote, and we've got to see that we are more alike than we are separate. Um, President Obama uh, said something that I think is so important in an interview with with uh, Pulitzer Prize winner Marilyn Robinson, a novelist, and I will paraphrase President Obama here. He said that one of the most important things he did as a person, not as a president, was to read novels because novels gave him an understanding of empathy and that if we stop reading, then we stop the opportunity, stop reading novels, we stop our ability or we lessen our ability to be empathic toward another person. And and if we do that, we start to endanger our democracy. Mm-hmm. So we've got to practice. Uh, we're, we're moving into a time now where, and I, I, you know, I'm quoting some pundit on TV, where we are becoming illiterate. We know how to read, but we choose not to. That is so frightening and so scary, especially to English teachers of the world. Mm-hmm. Yes, you're you're a retired English teacher. Um, I, I want to uh, let me see if I can find this here. One of uh, your presentations, the necessity of protest literature. You, you kind of are, are hitting at that. Well, once you know the there. stories, first of all, we have to know what we're upset about. We have to know why we're we're protesting. And once you understand what the stories are, then you can take the next the next step. And you see, there is no choice. You have to take a stand you have to become involved because you can't let you can't not do anything i think it was mother Teresa who said you don't have to do everything but you have to do something and people of conscience have to do something Let's take another break and come back with our last segment uh, with Margaret Witt. She is uh, Professor Emeritus of English at University of Denver, and uh, she is um, uh, editor, I guess you'd say, of uh, the short stories of the civil rights movement. This is uh, many uh, short stories dealing with specific issues of the civil rights movement, 1950s up to 1968, and then a few stories Mm -hmm. retrospective. The activities of 54 Mm -hmm. through 68, yes. Um, and she's the keynote speaker at the 2017 Benyon Teachers Workshop. It's uh, titled Literature Protest, Civil Rights, Democracy, Social Justice. And it's ongoing. 
happening at Utah State University campus. Uh, several presentations, necessity of protest literature, studying and teaching short stories from uh, short stories of the civil rights movement, retrospective perspectives on civil rights movement, an interesting discussion, studying and promoting civic engagement. And uh, this workshop is uh, sponsored by the Mountain West Center for Regional Studies at Utah State University. More following this. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Festival in Logan, Utah, featuring opera, Broadway, and concerts like The Pianist and An Evening with Fiddler on the Roof, lyricist Sheldon Harnick, July 11th through August 2nd. More info at utahfestival.org. And the Salt Lake City Weekly's 8th Annual Utah Beer Festival, Saturday and Sunday, August 19th and 20th at the Utah State Fair Park, featuring over 200 local and regional beers, ciders, food vendors, and live music. Tickets, details at utahbeerfestival.com. We're back with Margaret Witt, who is a Professor Emeritus of English at University of Denver. And she's the keynote speaker at the Benyon Teachers Workshop. This year, it's Literature of Protest, Civil Rights, Democracy, Social Justice. And it's sponsored by the Mountain West Center for Regional Studies at Utah State University. Margaret Witt uh, went to, uh, did her undergrad at uh, college in North Carolina. Back to North Carolina now, right? Correct. A uh, small community where, as she said at the, uh, the opening segment, everybody tries to get along, even though they're on different sides of the political yes. divide. And uh, so that may be a hopeful stereotype, or not stereotype, but a prototype for the, for the rest of the, of the nation. Um, I want to uh, talk a little bit about your students' reaction to, to this. You put, you put this together principally for students at Unit on Civil Rights because you wanted them to know the history, and you wanted them not only to know the history, but to feel the history. Yes, and I think that's crucial, right? Because I am an English professor, not a history professor. And I, I do think that, we, that it's important to, uh, to feel something in your heart about this. I mean, you know, there's, there's heart in, in people who love imaginative language and, and can see, see what that, that does. I have a good friend who was um, the AP English teacher at Columbine High School, and she told me once, she said, you know, when you stop feeling, you have to, you have to stop teaching. And so it's kind of like, oh, as long as you just feel miserable, <laughs> you should stay in the classroom. And when you become callous to it all, that's when you have to get out because you no longer care. There's, there's, there's something to be said about that, something there. Was she there? She was d- indeed. During, the, yes. during those tragic yes. events? She was indeed, yeah. yes. How do, you, how do you go back to the classroom after, after something uh, like that? Yeah, in fact, I took her example today. It's a, it's a story that I think is worth sharing uh, they were out five weeks after the incident, and uh, her phone rang as she was walking out the door, and she said, um, um, she just answered it. She didn't know why, because she had not been answering the phone, and it was the Boston Globe. And they said, what are you going to do today when you go back to, to Columbine? And she says, well, I've got some stones, and I've got a poem by Charles Simic, and I'm going to let students take a stone, and then we're going to look at the poem, and we're going to f- start the healing process today with words and with language. And um, so the next day, Charles Simic was doing a poetry reading in New Hampshire, and one of the people in the audience said, uh, read us the poem about the stones. And he said, why are you bringing that up? You know, I wrote that a long time ago. And uh, the woman said, well, in the Boston Globe, uh, they're using your poem at Columbine High School to to start healing. And so um, a couple weeks later, uh, Charles Simic was at the tattered cover uh, Denver's very famous independent bookstore, and my friend Carol Sampson went to meet him to thank him, and she introduced herself. She said, "I'm Carol Sampson from um, Columbine High School," and he said, "I know who you are, and I know what you did." And so uh, today, I think it's it's a wonderful exercise. So today, with everybody, I had some beach stones that I had collected from North Carolina shore just last week, and I took them in and I let everybody put their hand in a bag and let the stone come to them. And then I said, uh, let's read the poem now. So we read the poem. And uh, I said, this is a great exercise to use when you see students in your class who have been bullied. They need a place where they can go 
And the poem talks about going inside a stone where it might be cool and it might be calm. And that's what you need to do. Plus, we're all enhanced by carrying a stone in our pocket <laughs> to mm-hmm. hold on to. So um, Carol Sampson was, uh, is one of those people in my life that, you know, my life has improved by the fact that I see how she teaches and I see what she gives. And um, so I, I find that I often quote her and, uh, about how it is that she sees life. Mm. Said I was, I was very pleased that she did not die that day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you say in, in this collection and putting this collection together, one of the things you wanted to emphasize was civil rights movement did have leaders, Martin Luther King Jr., et cetera, et cetera. Well, wait, I want to stop right there yeah. because Martin Luther King was one of many leaders. But what's significant about him is that he was the chief spokesperson. Mm. He articulated the message better than anybody. And his I have a dream speech without question is the number one piece of oratory of the 20th century. But there were literally 50, 60, 100 leaders whose names we don't even know today. Mm-hmm. So lots of leaders but a chief spokesman in in uh, in Martin Luther King. The power of words, right? That's Absolutely. A, that's, that's, that's Absolutely. Why, uh, to, yeah. move, to move a movement. Uh, you go on to say that there are many unnamed, unknown citizens who, who had right. a, a big effect. Exactly. And, and these stories can represent them, I suppose. I think so. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, people who choose to say, you know, what does it take to be a man? And even if I have to die... I'm going to die a man, not a not a a person who is less than. Right. Yeah. Right. right? There, there's. Uh, are there some stories in this that stay with you more than others in this book? Uh, from from the from the yeah the short stories of the civil rights movement. Yes, um, I would have to say that um, I am moved by neighbors. Uh, it's a story where the house is bombed because the little boy is going to go to school the next day. Or is he? We don't know. And he has a scratch on his face. And he has a scratch on his face because his parents have said to him, you have to practice getting out of your bed and rolling under it so you won't be hurt. What, is that? what does that mean? Negro Progress, a story by Tony Grooms, um, has a character in it, a little child that um, she says to her daddy when he's sitting guard on the porch at night, are we going to be bombed tonight? And Tony Grooms, I, I know him and I visited with him and he told me that he um, has a wife who grew up in Birmingham and when she was six years old, it was 1963, and she, he, she had told him that every night when her daddy put her to bed, he said, she said to him, am I going to be bombed tonight? Are we going to be bombed tonight? What a thing for a child to say to her dad. And what a thing for a dad to hear. You know, no, geez, I hope we're not. No, not tonight. Um, so there are moments in the stories that that um, I go to that, uh, that still touch me today. Mm-hmm. Um, Negro progress would be one. There's a story called Selma. Uh, there was a woman named Viola Louisa who left her home in Michigan with four or five children to go down and participate in Selma because Martin Luther King had said, we need people of conscience to come to Selma for the walk that I'm talking about from 54 miles from Selma to Montgomery. And she was killed. Um, and the story is told uh, as Angelina is the fictional character that is Viola Louisa, and it's like her diary that we see. And that story is paired with Marching Through Boston by John Updike, a very well-known writer. And this is a story about a white man in Boston whose wife has gone down to participate in Selma, and he can't handle it. She comes home, and he is upset with the fact that she has done this. And so you see... You see uh, an interesting contrast about how different people view that whole Bloody Sunday business, the turnaround Tuesday, and then the walk that you know culminated, which I think was the last hurrah of the modern civil rights movement. It was not the killing of Martin Luther King, but 30,000 people in Montgomery 
on March 25th, 1965. Mm. So, one so those, those stories yeah. are the ones that speak to me. One stands out to me is that it's, it's, you know, kind of a simple plot, but uh, one I think for us to remember a, a uh, story about a uh, – Black pastor who's beaten to death by oh, the by the, the police. Yes, um, because he tried to buy a ticket on the white side of the bus station. Right. Yes. And this representative of things that went on. Right. R- routinely. And he's he's beaten till he's till he's dead. Mm-hmm. And then somebody else is told you must answer the question when you go to court this way, and he chooses not to do that, and he knows that it's going to mean the end of his livelihood in that town. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, just finally, uh, sure. you're, you're not on this panel, but I'm, I'm interested to get your take on this. Uh, this is part of the Bunyan Workshop. Uh, there'll be a panel on studying and promoting civic engagement. What would you uh, tell the teachers at the workshop or the students, uh, if you're in, the, in front of the classroom today, about, about what are the key points for you in, in civic engagement, especially in our times? Um, I'm going to go back and say it again, voting. You can't be civically engaged unless you vote. And I understand that conservative people who are who are over 65 are the are the most likely to turn out at the polls. And the young people are the ones who are least likely to turn out at the polls. And when they understand what people have gone through to get the vote, maybe they will take this more seriously. I would love to see young people, and I'm talking about the demographic from 20 to 35, 20 to 40, on on the eve before we vote or sometime now with so much early voting, if they would come together with their peers, have parties, talk about what the issues are. Because some people don't vote because they just don't know who the people are. They don't know what they stand for. Um, make yourself responsible to learn about these people. Talk with your friends about them and then go to the bowls and vote. So civic engagement has to start with understanding what the issues are and then following through with the vote. And only in education, only in knowing about what this is, because if we don't, this is where it all falls apart. If people just say, well, it doesn't really involve me. It does involve you. Yeah. Good place to end the discussion. We're out of time. Uh, We've been talking with Margaret Witt, who is Professor Emeritus of English at University of Denver. And uh, she's keynote speaker at the uh, Benyon Teachers Workshop for this year, Literature, Protest, Civil Rights, Democracy, Social Justice, title of the workshop uh, at uh, Utah State University, sponsored by the Mountain West Center for Regional Studies at Utah State University. Margaret, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for your time and your interest. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Christy Aachen, one of the Access Utah producers for Utah Public Radio. We produce extraordinary shows for our UPR community, following fascinating ideas, important issues, and compelling stories. Access Utah is also a program that listens to you. If you have comments, story ideas, or questions for any of us, we'd love to hear them. Please email us at upraccess at gmail.com or call us at 1-800-826-1495. You can also share ideas with us on social media. Follow and post on our Access Utah Facebook and Twitter page. Just be sure to include the hashtag IAMUPR. And thank you for listening. This is Ted Twinting, and I am a development officer with Utah Public Radio. Underwriting with UPR allows you and your business to capture the attention and ears of informed, educated, and savvy consumers across the state of Utah. To learn more about becoming a sponsor with UPR, call our development team at 435-797-3141. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.